Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 125, recorded on, uh, what is it? It's October 12th already of 2020, and uh, this is the show where I host it. I'm Don Komarechka, and we just geek out about photo stuff for roughly an hour. Uh, whatever happens in the news cycle, it could be tech, it could be ethics and legal, it could be the latest stuff in space. Uh, whatever I can dig up, uh, we uh, put on a platter and we feast uh, as the news stories go. And uh, I make that reference because I want to say happy, Can- uh, happy Canada, happy Thanksgiving, happy Canadian Thanksgiving um, to uh, my guest this episode, Alan Attridge. Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty. We had Thanksgiving last night here in Germany, Canadian Thanksgiving in Germany. So did you have? Did, did you do it up with the like the? Do you do, you do turkey or ham? Uh, we do need. My wife's vegetarian, so guess what? Tofurkey? No, we don't. Not that kind of vegetarian. <laughs> Uh, no, no, we, we, I, no, no point in making a full turkey. We, we use, I grew up with turkey on Thanksgiving, but, uh, no, we do, we went go for the homemade cabbage rolls and pierogies. That's the, Oh, uh, that'll do it. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, what we had last night. Those were usually, uh, side dishes, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know, especially when I would go to like the big Ukrainian Thanksgivings, um, as soon as they, um, uh, my, my family immigrated to Canada, probably five generations ago, um, they decided to use any excuse for everybody to get together and have, you know, that gigantic meal, uh, and everybody would bring their specialty and you'd get the cabbage rolls and the pierogies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was, that was always fun. Uh, That's my childhood as well. Small, yeah. Yeah, a small affair here at home. Uh, we did make a turkey, and we'll be having turkey for a long time. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I made a, a sauce actually that went quite well with it from stuff in our in our own garden from autumn olive berries, which kind of look like a red currant, uh, and sea buckthorn berries, and uh, and some quince, uh, all fresh. And uh, so that was my substitute for cranberry sauce this year. And this is now the this weekend cooking show. <laughs> um, is is it like is Thanksgiving a a thing in Germany or like do they have like a harvest festival or something? Uh, yeah. There. Well, normally, normally there is. Well, it's Oktoberfest is the big one, of course. Right. right. Uh, not this year. That's canceled. But they also have Oktoberfest happens in Munich. And uh, but all around Germany, there are different sort of versions of that. And like there's one in there's one in Stuttgart as well, which is near nearby where I am. So I would have gone this year. But again, that's closed down. Yep, uh, as it should be, you know, civil responsibility and, and all that uh, in, in a year where uh, well, a lot of unprecedented stuff has been happening. How's it been affecting you? Uh, I know that you typically would be shooting tons of video gigs and have those been coming back in? Uh, nope, nope. A bunch of those got canceled. Uh, a couple of my big ones for the year, which uh, I've done every year, for like one job I've done every year for 20 years, uh, and that disappeared. Uh, I mean, I, I, I completely understand the client. I mean, they're hurting as well. They have no need for it. You know, we're, we're, we're all good. Um, and I'll be fine. I'm not, not too worried about it. Yeah. But, uh, that's just I, and, and I've is. been doing a lot of stuff online. Um, or, you know, I've, um, there was one day, uh, earlier in the summer, um, that I shot a new video for DP review TV. Uh, it's a series that I want to pick up and, and put an episode out, um, you know, once every two weeks or so. And I think it's, if I can record, you know, a five minute video across a day, you know, once every 14 days or so, I mean, that's a, uh, it's a decent thing, but, um, you know, it's so much easier uh, over the the winter time. Uh, Jordan Drake was was here from uh, also from DP Review, and he filmed. Uh, uh, you know, we did three or four episodes over a, over a weekend. And it was so much easier when you've got somebody behind the camera that is mm-hmm. not yourself. Uh, filming yourself, uh, especially when you're doing multiple shots, multiple angles, you're not just sitting at a desk in a static position uh, where you could have multiple cameras pointed at you in, in different uh, positions. That's uh, hard. I don't. I don't enjoy it one bit. I, I like the final product. It was a video on ultraviolet uh, reflectance and some of the patterns and flowers that insects can see that, that we can't. And I'll put a link to that um, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, so be sure you check that out. I really want as many eyeballs and the positive comments on that video as I can get um, because that means that they'll pay me to make more. So how, <laughs> I how really many, want that to be a series going. How many videos do you have up there currently? Uh, well, there's a few that I've done with Chris and Jordan over the years that weren't a part of this series. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, there was two of those plus, uh, four more. So six in total, right? Okay. So I saw in the, in the group of four, I watched all four today 
And because you'd sent me the last one, the latest one, the UV one that you'd, you'd shot yourself. And so I just I watched it, liked it. My daughter watched it with me, who's nine. She loved it. Had a lot of questions about you know, what the bugs see and, 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 and what insects, I suppose. Um, and uh, so then I watched the other ones because you'd said, hey, they're difficult to shoot yourself. And I thought, wow, you did great on the first few. Now I, understand. I I didn't shoot them myself. There you go. You, you can <laughs> yeah. see a, you can see a you can see a, a difference, but for stuff that it was shot yourself, it was very well done. But I echo how difficult it is. Like it's difficult if I'm going to go and shoot something for somebody else and not be on camera. It is difficult to handle the lighting, the camera, and the audio all at once. Oh, and, and you, I don't even have good indoor lighting here. I mean, in, in front of my desk, I do have an LED light panel, and that's the only uh, continuous light source that I have. I need to invest in some to put in my regular studio space because the lighting in there is just awful. Um, and you'll see that in the next video when it comes out. Um, but uh, it's it's a process, and I'm sure it'll get, it'll get easier as time goes on. But, um, uh, you know, w one of the ideas that I have also involves um, high-speed uh, photography. And that kind of segues into our, our top story, if you can call it that, um, where uh, this is uh, reported via Petapixel. I did see it elsewhere too, but um, the new FreeFly Wave has a global shutter and shoots a whopping 9,259 frames per second. Um, now that's a bit of a you know, a grab because at that rate, uh, you know, your resolution is only, uh, something, what did it say? Uh, uh, 2048 by 128 pixels, this tiny right. little strip, which is not used for visual stuff. It's used for measurements, uh, I believe at that point to see how fast something is moving and, uh, and, and what have you. But if you dial it down to a 2k resolution, um, so that's roughly 1080p, uh, it's 1,461 frames per second, which is a good number. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of really interesting things that you could explore with that at a price point of only $10,000. And I say only because these types of cameras that could shoot at those frame rates were typically at a zero and then double it prices. So the, what, global shutter, that's the part that really, I mean, the, the slow motion part's great. Global shutter, global shutter to me means an actual physical shutter, like a 180 shutter. Is that what they're talking about here? I believe it's that the sensor is read out instantaneously at once rather right. than a rolling shutter that would, uh, you know, give you the wobbly airplane propellers and, and things like that. If you were to uh, to use a regular camera with a rolling shutter in that same scenario, a global shutter, instead of the uh, the propellers being all like totally bent and looking mm -hmm. weird, uh, they'd be their proper straight angles. Okay, so it's not a physical, like a, like in a film camera, like a, like a film movie camera, like that would be a global shutter. I mean... Right. I don't think that that would be possible at these frame rates uh, ah. without it exploding. Possibly. Possibly. Well, they did shoot some fast stuff. Uh, we'll see. I mean, they can if you can shoot IMAX and move that film. Anyways, th I digress. So, so th that was what kind of really grabbed my, my, my attention. Um, the the slow-mo is, is great. The, the price is, is fantastic. The physical size of this camera is amazing. It's minuscule. Yeah, this thing is tiny. Um, so, so my uh, albeit, uh, no, uh, continue. My first, my first thing, uh, first thought was this is going to be great for the Olympics. Oh yeah. Um, although I mean, Phantom has their, uh, high powered, super expensive, uh, again, it, mm -hmm. yeah, at the price point, that's maybe half the cost of my house, um, cameras that the Olympics can afford that kind of gear that ups the ante a tiny bit. They wouldn't necessarily need this because their budgets are just gigantic but they're not so small that they're inside of a hockey net or at the finish line or they're oh, going to put these right. cameras in places that you've the never seen ability yeah um yeah no you're, and the you're disposability right well okay yeah because you know at ten thousand uh, dollars a camera plus lens obviously um and uh, typically you'd need some extensive uh, additional lighting because again if you're trying to shoot at, you know, over a thousand frames per second, you've got to have really intense continuous light on for that time, um, which could actually be a distraction uh, to any of the athletes. Uh, if it's in, on all the time, like in the, like behind a hockey net or something, mm -hmm. or if um, it pulses on just for a brief moment, it could be disorienting until people get used to that. Uh, so I'm not sure. I think that 
it could be fun to try. I don't know if the, uh, you know, the gold medal Olympic game is the first place where it should be implemented. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the fact that if you break it, um, well, that's just the cost of doing business, uh, versus however many additional views or, uh, you know, how much money could be made from it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, what, uh, what would you, what would you shoot in high speed? Because one of the things on my list is to do um, like water droplet collisions where they're colliding and then you've got these splooshes of water that just kind of, uh, that would be really psychedelic. And, you know, I'd probably get a lot of YouTube views for people in altered states of mind. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, I've, I've got uh, electric experiments. I've got a, a Tesla coil kit that I want to put together and there could be some experiments with slow-mo with that. Um, and, uh, oh, who knows, uh, just making stuff fall or shatter or, um, trying to take a, an old camera, uh, flash bulb, which I don't know why I have these in reach. Um, but to artificially, uh, weaken it, uh, somehow like etch the, the glass to, to make it very, very fragile, uh, and then set one of those off and just kind of watch the, the glass shatter and, and fly away. I, I just ideas off the top of my head that having one of these cameras, even if I had to rent one for a nominal fee for a weekend would be really worthwhile. It sounds like it. Yeah. I think what I would probably do is like my, my son is six now and he's starting to really hit the ball at baseball. So I'm going to do a lot of breaking down his swing and making sure he, you know, makes the national team one day. That's what I'm using it for. (laughs) Uh, Hey, that, that works. Um, I remember when my, uh, uh, my dad, I, I was three years old and he was an electronics repair technician and he had a, uh, a broadcast caliber beta cam, um, which they were like those massive cameras that, uh, they probably weighed 50 pounds or more. Um, and, uh, and again, were cost prohibitive. Like they, you would never be able to purchase anything like that as an individual, mm-hmm. but he had to test it. Uh, and this was in late June. And so I have uh, professional broadcast Betamax recordings of my third birthday. Um, <laughs> so, and what do you play those on? Uh, I've, I had them converted to, uh, to digital a long time ago when uh, people still had functional Betamax machines. Right. So, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's a fun little camera. Uh, and I think that it's a paradigm shift in terms of the price point. What, what I hope happens with something like this, uh, and, and we should say that um, uh, it's got a uh, E-mount, an EF-mount adapter. And so uh, you, can, uh, you can allow the, uh, the, the adapters look passive uh, so that they don't actually communicate with the lenses. So right. you might have to uh, you know, wiggle around that a little bit. But you, typically, you'd need the maximum amount of light for these shots anyhow. So it's not something that you'd be stopping down considerably um, at the end of the day. But the, the fact that this comes in at 10000 um, which does like, it's more money than I've ever paid for a camera. And so I'm not going to run out and buy one. Um, but other players in this space, uh, I, I hope it forces their prices a little bit lower and kind of, uh, bring some competition to the forefront because there's three or four companies that have really been playing here. Um, and sort of like when medium format with, uh, Leaf and Mamiya and, uh, and Hasselblad, um, their cameras were so expensive, but then it started to come in where, you know, Fuji's coming in and, and phase one started buying up some of the smaller companies and consolidating. Um, we might see a transition in high speed that, uh, that brings those price points a lot lower, uh, just like the Fuji GFX has done for the medium format space. Competition so. is great. It is. It is. Um, not sure how much else we can say about this. Go to the show notes and watch the video. It looks pretty cool. Um, so, talking about video in a different context, uh, reported by DP Review, um, and they got a video here, Adobe teases advanced color grading tool coming to Adobe Camera Raw, Lightroom, and Lightroom Classic. Um, Now, color grading has been an important thing in the video space, and we've had tools, obviously, uh, to push pixels all over the the spectrum. Uh, Originally, it was like simple split toning in the earliest versions of Lightroom, and now it's becoming more advanced. Um, Do you find these uh, tools more akin to the video uh, workflow that you might have been used to before, and is that an advantage for photographers? Wow. Uh, it looks, I was going to ask you, what do you think? I mean, are they trying to make this simpler or, cause I think it gets a little more confusing. I do like the integration with say premier or just standard color grading tools. Um, 
color grading is a it's a dark art. It's really <laughs> hard to it, it you you can know just enough to be dangerous, or you can be really good at it. And I'm not really good at it. I I can get by. Um, first of all, I'm red green colorblind, which kind of messes up everything. However, I can get by using the scopes and whatnot. However, which I've said nine times, I have I have been to like a professional color grading facility, like back when we shot 16 millimeter film for film school and watched them transfer that 16 mil onto uh, Betacam, Betamax that we, it was Betacam, not Betamax, Betacam that we could then edit. And they would basically do what was called, um, it wasn't exactly a one light print, but it was something like that where they would take the first scene and they would color correct during the transfer and then let the rest of the, assume the rest of the role was going to be similar. Right. Which it wasn't, but it'd be pretty close. <laughs> They'd get the contrast just right and all that. And so, but watching those guys do that, it was amazing how they could really dial in the, the color, the, the, the skin tones would, would be perfect uh, on that transfer. And I can't do that. Um, well, and I, I don't think I could either. I mean, it's one of those things that probably takes, uh, you know, thousands of hours of practice to do it so intuitively and get it right almost the first time uh, with maybe a few minor corrections as you go through the process. I, I think that because of the um, the, the fine tune, almost uh, holistic, uh, intuitive approach of doing that, that it, it, it you can play it by the numbers, like 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 you said, you can look at the scopes and you can you can figure things out that way. But uh, in order to do it, you just has to be living in the back of your brain constantly, and then you just access it when needed. Um, and to that end, uh, having a tool that you could learn uh, that has that power, I think, is useful. Um, but it's also not for beginners. And just uh, if you were to play around with this, and, and again, w- I watched the video to see how powerful it is. Um, it's just, it opens up all of the knobs and dials and sliders. And, and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the cockpit of a 747 in terms of what you can do, even though most people, they're going to hit the autopilot button. Right. right. It's not, it's, they're not going to dive into the minutia um, that, okay, well, what happens if an engine fails and you need to press all of those buttons and understand it uh, and have that intuitive in that moment of need. But what was the big selling point in the, I watched the video as well. What was the number one selling point? I, I think a, a closer connection between video and stills workflows, to be honest. Um, I, because, you know, if you've ever like spent your whole life living in Photoshop and then pick up Premiere for the first time, just understanding how to do the most basic adjustments to color, mm-hmm. you, you're you not going to find anything. Uh, you're not going to know where to look. You're not going to know what the sliders and the tools do because there's such a disparity between them. And I think this right. brings it closer to that video space. Um, and yeah, you'll still need to retrain yourself, but not as hard. How about you? Uh, my takeaway was they really wanted to push the orange and teal look, the the the, the blue shadows. <laughs> so I mentioned the split toning effect, yeah. is which we had before, and I, you know what? It's a it's an effect. Uh, I it's overused, but um, it is overused. I do. I that's the thing is it's very cliche. Um, I do love it. I love when it's used well, uh, but that seems to be their big selling point. Is hey, now you can do the orange and teal. So. Well, I, you could always do it with just a preset, right? You uh, can, yeah. Or a lookup table or whatever else you wanted to just plug mm-hmm. it in and drop it down. And that's what the beginners, uh, you know, would always be playing with. And I've played with. And, you know, whenever you're starting, you use the work of others as the foundation for your own development. Um, that's just the par for the course for learning. Um, do I think it's going to make a dramatic impact on people in the still space? I don't think at all. Uh, in fact, I... I mentioned the transition between the two video and stills as being a possible benefit. I had to stretch to find that um, because I just don't, I don't see myself really being forced to use this now in Adobe camera raw uh, if I don't have to. And mm-hmm. I don't have to, cause I got all of the other tools already at my disposal that I've already learned. I'm not going to, you know, uh, remake the wheel as it were. No, and for me, like I, I don't do a ton of color correction, but when I do, I, I, I look at it like it's it's just a different skill set. It's a different muscle memory. It, it's not it's not super important that they they be cohesive. Hey, you know, since I got you on, and since there's been a lot of camera announcements in the last little while, especially, uh, and I asked uh, Jordan uh, this recently, the uh, the Lumix S5, uh, the Sony A7C, uh, and uh, you know stuff from 
Canon and everybody is rolling out features uh, with, uh, you know, extended video compatibility, especially shooting raw video through external recorders, sometimes internally. Um, is that anything that uh, is important to any of the work that you think you're going to be doing in the next five years? Having external raw video? Or even internal. Like, is that because that's really where color grading becomes more powerful in the video space, right? Right. I'd prefer not to. I, 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 don't, I don't even like shooting flat, quote unquote, flat video and then having to grade it later. I prefer to get it as close in camera as I can because that speeds up your end time, like your workflow on the back end a lot. Now, there is some correction that needs to be done and being have, having the option to do to shoot raw is nice. Um, if you're, you know, if you're going to shoot like a feet, like a, like an independent feature film on a, mm-hmm. on a, R5, for example, that would be very handy to have. Yeah, but even then, that costs a lot more money. Like generally, like when, whenever I, I, I sort of bill for a, or do a proposal for a project, here's what it's going to cost. I I tend to shoot most most things I do is I'll give up price for the shooting day, and then times it by X, and and then that's the price. I call. So, so for example, for a photo shoot, a basic photo shoot, I'm going to just call it a double. So I'm going to say, okay, you, you owe me two X per hour on site. I know every hour is going to be an hour at home. If I'm right. fast, uh, you know, to, to put it all together in post. And if you're shooting raw, your workflow time is going to be longer. If you're shooting vlog or whatever log format, it's going to be a little bit longer than right. uh, shooting it uh, uh, just with our traditional means. But I, I think I remember you telling me that uh, you've just purchased a new iMac, right? In order for you to possibly cut those times down a little bit. Now, I, I, w- I want to make a, a point of reference here. Um, just because you can do it faster doesn't mean you should charge less. Oh, no. That's a, that is an excellent point. Then that's one that I, obviously, I know. And it's difficult getting across to the client sometimes. And I'm not I'm not the kind of person who will, I'm not, I'm not going to sandbag a project, which I, I, I've I've heard people doing. Like they don't want to deliver too quickly because the client will think, well, what am I paying for then? You're, you know, it didn't take you that long. Um, but you're paying for all the mistakes I made in the past. That's, that's a different conversation. But well, yeah, well, I, what's your new computer? Uh, yeah, yeah. Who's going to pay for that? That's right. I mean, but uh, yeah, I've been working. I've been working for so long. It's one of those things. If it's not broke don't fix it. So I've been working so long on my laptop that like it's, it's almost 10 years old now. I've had no complaints. It's starting to get a little bit slow processing images and it's costing me time. And so now I did, I upgraded, I bought, I bought uh, the new 27 inch iMac, which I've never had an iMac before. I'm very excited by the, the simplicity of having one piece of, I I like the design aspect. It's how it's going to fit into my new office as well. One cable, the end. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's pretty simple, you know, with uh, wireless interface for keyboard and mouse, and mm-hmm. um, and you know, and, and in fact, from a similar principle, I'm currently using a um, a Surface Book Three as my main computer. Uh, my desktop motherboard is kind of misbehaving, and I have to replace it. And I'm thinking, if that doesn't hold up, and I still could use it for some things like intensive focus stacking because it's got all the cores and stuff that are fully utilized, but not much of it was uh, in, in most cases. So to have a, a, a desktop replacement laptop that I just plug into the dock and mm-hmm. everything lights up, uh, the, the the big monitor, the keyboard, the mouse, which are still wired, in this case, the webcam and printers, all the peripherals just come right on. Um, and I can unplug it and take it outside and sit on the porch swing and write emails if I wanted to do that and enjoy the nice fall weather. Um, and that's really convenient for me. And there's a simple uh, or a similar design methodology uh, with the IMAX in that everything's behind the screen, right? Like it's right. Um, in the case of the Surface Book, uh, you're kind of building that into a notebook platform so that I can uh, detach it from its base, which has a bigger battery and a GPU, which I mean, I'll be honest, I've only done that as a novelty thing a couple of times. Uh, it's not part of my current workflow. Um, but it would be really nice if I've got uh, an editing project that requires a lot of hands-on fine-tuned work to just flip it around uh, and and have it function in a tablet form with all the power of the GPU with the pen input uh, and use it as like um, a Wacom Cintiq or you know something of that nature where you've got the, the same kind of interface there. Uh, and people swear by those devices. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
the short answer is we live in a, a, a amazing time for technology. Uh, and then the second part of your, your question is no, I'm, I'm probably not going to shoot raw video in the next five years. I don't see the point. I will. Um, but I won't for myself. Uh, I, I will, right. I'll shoot some stuff in, in vlog with my cameras, especially if I'm in a harsh lighting condition and I want to give a little bit of an extra edge there. Um, but I will shoot the heck out of raw, uh, for documentary film work. And I want to have, uh, stuff that I shoot on spec for some of those. Th those are big productions and they want the highest quality that they can get. And, and they're going to be in the editing room sometimes for months, um, fine tuning it. So it doesn't matter to them what the input is so long it's the best that they can get. Um, and, uh, sometimes it would even save them time in order to get things right. If you give them raw versus anything else. So, um, I've got my, uh, Atomos Ninja V for that. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be shooting snowflakes and freezing soap bubbles and all sorts of interesting crystal formations and mad sciencey stuff, uh, through the winter months. Uh, usually I get a contract for some of it last year. I didn't, and I shot it anyways. And one came in the spring. Uh, and I said, I, I got what you need. Uh, so fine. I changed my answer. I'm going to start shooting raw. I don't think I have a choice. Once one guy whitens his teeth, Don, we all have to whiten them. So, okay. <laughs> I'm in, I'm doing now. That's it. I'm moving to raw starting next, next month. I, I didn't mean to convince you. Uh, so, Done. um, all right, well, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> all right, let's, let's move on to our, uh, our, our next story. And this kind of ties in with the whole color grading idea and, uh, and how we perceive our, our photos. Um, Dell has announced a, uh, I'll save that the price, uh, cause it's in the title. I'll tell you that in a minute, a, a 31.5 inch ultra sharp HDR display with 2000 mini led dimming zones and two other monitors. Well, I mean, they're probably great too, but, uh, this is their flagship. Uh, and as a flagship monitor, this is just a display device. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how much you paid for your uh, incoming iMac, Alan, but um, it's $5,000 for just a display. Um, now, they're not the only company making displays of this caliber, at least at, at this price point. Um, but what's your... <sighs> What, what's your need in a good computer display? Like, is it mission critical that everything matches perfectly? I don't think anybody's really asking for that in, in the space that we generally work in. Uh, no, but this, this, is, this is the exact place where color toning would come in handy if you're going to do something like this. But I generally try, when I do my color grading, for whether it's for photos or, or, or video or whatever it is, I tend to try to color grade for the median common denominator. Not the right. lowest, but what are most people going to look at this on? Is it going to be an iPhone or iPad or what are they going to see it on? And so I try to reverse engineer it so it looks the best on the most devices. That That's actually a great mentality because if you've got the best monitor that money can buy to make things as perfect as they can possibly be on that display... Well, nobody else is going to look at it on that display, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I would even uh, argue to, to keep your old laptop, your nine-year-old laptop handy. Uh, and uh, once you're finished a project, just play it back on there and mm -hmm. your phone and, uh, and see, okay, well, are there any glaring things where, you know what, these older displays or these cheaper monitors just don't handle the reds that I calibrated exactly the way that they should and maybe make an adjustment, especially if it's, you know, a, a brand um, where they're caring very specifically about Pantone colors and so on and so forth. You got to kind of meet that happy medium, especially if it's going to be a digital display and not something that goes into print. If there was, it got to the point where even if I was getting some basic prints, not, nothing high end, but just some basic prints made around town, I would know the different outputs of the different vendors, for example. Like, I'm not sure if you have London Drugs back east, but like that, I would get prints done at London Drugs and I would know that they would print them a little bit dark. So I would overcorrect for them. It would look great on my monitor, but I knew they'd come in a little bit dark. So I'd, I would overcorrect a little bit just to help them out. Or if I'm getting at, at Black's, for example, a place where I, I know you used to work, you know, I would yep. know how they would print and, and govern myself accordingly. So yeah, it's great. looks good on your computer. Unless you're willing to invite everybody over to your house to watch it, you better play by their rules. 
Well, and, and, and to that point uh, as well, uh, different locations will handle things differently. And when I worked at Blacks, which is no more, I think there might be still a blacks.ca website uh, or something, and you might be able to order prints through that, but there's no physical locations. Um, but when we had a Fuji Frontier, uh, which was a cool contraption that used lasers to expose photosensitive paper and then chemically processed it, um, and it was a really fun uh Fun machine to use. But even if you, uh, when submitting an order either online or through a kiosk, uh, chose to have no color corrections, it was still doing them. And <laughs> I had to, uh, and it was just like a baseline correction. And, and it was because, you know, if people f- went out skiing and uh, brought in their, their cameras or their phones and wanted to print a whole bunch of skiing photos where you have just this wash of white and all the photos would turn out gray, there'd be a bunch of complaints about it. Right. right. So they they had to just, again, go to that kind of baseline of, well, the majority of the consumers that are sending in the photos aren't really being accurate with their colors. So we're going to have to give them a slight leg up in the right direction based on some automatic algorithms and so on. And, and I would there was a way to avoid that. You would just say, OK, uh, crack open the order in, in, in the back. And um, and once you do that, it prevents the auto correction. Uh, like as soon as you just open it up and start doing anything, even if you don't do any manual corrections, it overrides right. anything. Um, and uh, I had to remind the, the staff there after I had left to do this with one of my orders. And uh, the prints came back and I could look at, I looked at them immediately and I said, no, you didn't, you didn't open up the order in the back to prevent the auto corrections. And so, no, there's no auto corrections. You didn't send them in. Well, I know that, but I also <laughs> intimately know the machine behind this wall. Um, yep. And uh, and I showed them, and and sure enough, uh, you know, there you go. So uh, I don't know. What, 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 I'm rambling now. What this was, was the point? plot of War Games with Matthew Broderick, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> there we go. Would you like to play a game? I've I've seen this. It's excellent. Uh, um, one thing with this monitor that I, I do like now. I wonder how it's going to work. In in monitor, but a built-in color calibrator does sound good, at least on paper. How is yeah, it going to well, work? Yeah, well, and uh, Ezo has had those for a long time. Uh, and so it just would pop up and that would calibrate sort of in that location. Although the monitor calibrating software and hardware has gotten better in the sense that you can, um, you know, position it in different parts of the screen and figure out how accurate it is from one corner versus the center and, and so on and so forth. And X-Rite makes some great hardware for that. Um, and, and I have it. Uh, but it's also inconvenient to say, okay, well, you know, the the timer is up, you know, I calibrated three months ago or whatever mm-hmm. I set it to, and I got to take it out and tilt the screen back and drop it down on top of the display and, um, and then walk away for however long it takes. To, and do uh, I to want do it calibrated for noon o'clock or for 6 p.m.? Because you're the ambient light changes in your room. Yeah, well, I mean, this room is pretty well, like I've got, uh, you know, cardboard in front of the window and behind me because you know, it's inconsistent for the video stuff that I do. Uh, but yeah, in a lot of rooms, there, there's windows and, and that light will change and, and the quality of that light will change. And that's why it's got this um, uh, this little shield over top of it, which, uh, you know, a lot of really high-end displays will have. I think they look kind of dorky, but I know that they're effective in what they do. However, that makes me want to call out Dell on something when I'm looking at the specific details of their promo image. If you want to take a close look at that, you can see that there is a small amount of light reflecting on the inside of that barrier off of the illumination of the screen, particularly in the upper right-hand corner of the display. Um, the upper right-hand corner has a, a bicycle going by with like a red brick wall. Yet the light that's reflecting on the inside of the black matte uh, finish has no color in it whatsoever. It's purely white or like a, a light gray color. There's no oh. saturation to it at all. And it's offset uh, from the, the large white blob that is in the center of the screen where you've got an overexposed seascape image is not represented properly in the reflection on that mat, which means they have photoshopped in the screen and had something else there to begin with or maybe nothing there to begin with. Um, and so... Um, that is, that is my terrible segue, Alan, to, to the next story. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you're getting a Dell. That's what's happening. That's, that's... <laughs> there you go. No, uh, so, uh, and, and we, I don't really want to talk, uh, politics on this, uh, podcast. Well, we're gonna. 
we're <laughs> in a sense we're going to talk photojournalism and, mm-hmm. and how it intersects with politics uh reported by petapixel but i saw this on all the major mainstream media um did president trump stage photos yes while being treated for covid19 and uh before you blatantly say yes there are two different poses of trump with folders and you know, binders and stuff, uh, paperwork on his desk that he seems to be busy with. Um, and I, I actually looked up the presidential suite at Walter Reed, uh, medical center and it has, it's ornate. It's got like mm-hmm. massive rooms and, uh, it, uh, it is very presidential. There's multiple desks, multiple tables, uh, from major conference rooms to smaller areas. And it's of actually on Airbnb when he's not using it. <laughs> I, I wish that were true. Um, but, it's incredibly plausible that he has these locations that he could be sitting at uh, in various points throughout his day. Um, I'm not sure if all of them would necessarily be utilized. Um, But there were two handout photos uh, that the Associated Press had distributed uh, detailing uh, the President of the United States' time in this uh, medical treatment facility. He was there for three or four days, I think. Um, And uh, so uh, John... um, uh, Ostrauer uh, on on Twitter commented um, that the photos released by the White House tonight of the president working at Walter Reed were taken 10 minutes apart at uh, 525, uh, well, 526 p.m. and uh, and 535 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time uh, on Saturday, according to the EXIF data embedded in both the Associated Press wire postings that were shared by the White House this evening. Um, so what's that mean to you? Uh, I didn't even need to see the photos to know that, yes, of course, they were staged. And that's not a, that's not an indictment of, of Trump or a Republican or a Democrat. That's just that's just how it is. Yeah. That happens. I don't really see anything wrong with that necessarily. Unless unless the part of their narrative was, yes, he was working a 12 hour day. And here's proof. If they're if, if they're specifically using this to lie, then, yeah, there's probably something wrong ethically there. I don't know if it's photographically unethic. I I don't think photographically it's unethical, but journalistically it is. And so that's where photojournalism uh, kind of rides the line. Is this photojournalism though? This is a, this is a handout photo. This is coming from like the press, the press release. Right. And, and a lot of the stuff that, uh, that is published by, by the white house is, um, I mean, especially right now when we're less than a month away from a U.S. election, you're going to have a lot of stuff that is um, publicity, right? Uh, One way or another. Uh, And this is definitely for the publicity element of it. But um, I I guess the the question is, did it need to be faked? And if it did, why? And there might be a story there. Right. And and so the fact that it was done as a publicity and not as a sense of realism, I think, is uh, where photojournalism is is marching down. Uh, and, and photojournalists have always had the ability to to manipulate the truth. And I've mentioned a number of classic images in the past. The one that always uh, sticks in my head is the vulture and the little girl, uh, because that is such a narrow view of the world mm-hmm. in that photo. And maybe I'll put a link to that and the story behind the photographer who unfortunately took his life as a result of the feedback from uh, from that image. But um, the, the idea of photojournalism, um, faking things that don't need to be faked, uh, or taking a view of things that is intentionally misleading what the truth was of something. I think that's where the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I tried to give the benefit of the doubt to the photographer. Um, uh, I tried to think, okay, well, uh, I know that I don't always, uh, change the, uh, the daylight savings time on my camera. Right. And so mm-hmm. what if uh, what if I was shooting with two camera bodies and one of them I did and the other one I didn't. Right. And so then I might be off by an hour and 10 minutes and, and not an hour. Um, so that could have been, uh, you know, widening mm-hmm. the gap. But both images were taken with a 70 to 200 millimeter lens. And there's no reason for you to have two identical camera bodies with two identical lenses uh, for a no. shoot like that. That just doesn't seem plausible either. Okay. So you've so. shot documentaries though. You've shot documentaries. Like you, okay, not even documentaries, but let's say your, your latest um, DP review where you shot your own, you shot your, you shot yourself. Yep. Now, if you, if you watch that video, like there's, there's a shot of you uh, talking to the camera and then, and then you basically say, here's what the, ca- here's, here's what you turn and you show, here's what uh, infrareds or UVCs. 
Was that all happening in real time? Uh, it was linear uh, in the sense that I, I would shoot the, the clip of myself mm -hmm. and then I would shoot uh, whatever it was that I was shooting after I had finished the clip of myself and I had or, or, or the other way around. Uh, but right. they, they were happening in concert, except for some of the B-roll that I had shot out of sequence. Uh, right. The Forget Me Not Flowers that had a nice little glimmering effect. That was done earlier in the year because uh, those flowers weren't blooming, obviously, at the time that I was out there. So that is bending reality, too. Um, What's it's important not is, is, is you didn't shoot it as it happened. However, you, you, so you restaged things. Mm -hmm. But the distinction is those things actually did happen. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, sometimes, and I, I, I love the, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this before in the podcast, when I was shooting the mosquito documentary for discovery, we were using high speed. Um, but the lights were so intense, um, and so hot that it was killing the mosquitoes before they had a chance to fly. And we got to see their wings, uh, flapping. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we had to really work with technology and, uh, and timing in order to get the footage of a mosquito flapping its wings. There was so much happening behind the scenes in order to get closer to what the truth really was. Um, and so we, we marched hard to get there. Um, whereas this seems like kind of the opposite direction. Possibly. I mean, let, let's let's say he is signing some, you know, high speed documents. Maybe you don't want to have any of that information online. So you can't photograph those documents. You still so maybe he is signing a blank piece of paper. Maybe he actually did. Maybe those maybe he was working. And now we're just shooting this after as part of a press release. I don't know the ethics behind that. This is the this is this is an issue, however, where remember, in a previous lifetime, he was a reality television star. This and the only thing real about reality television is in the title reality. The rest <laughs> is fake. It, it is. I've worked on these sh on shows. It is not real. What you're it, seeing well, is it, not real. It is real. the antithesis of it. And, and, and yeah. you know, it's so easy to see that when you look at, you know, Survivor or Big Brother or, you know, X Factor or any of these programs that um, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff is so orchestrated and calculated uh, for maximum audience response. Correct. Um, that, uh, that, because the if it was reality, it would be as boring as watching your cat sleep. Of course, of course. So not only so that's a situation where it is cooked, um, but for documentaries to go back and recreate something that happened that you missed, even though you're trying to film something as it happens and say, okay, great, that really happened. I got part of it. I I need to get coverage. I got one camera on this. I see nothing wrong with that ethically, so long as what happened actually happened. And even if it's a matter of you sort of shaping the perspective on that. Well, that's kind of the, that's the domain of the director uh, to go ahead and do that. The one thing I didn't understand in a, in, I, I didn't dive deep on this, but it, if it's a press release, now we're, I'm not talking about, you know, the AP, I'm assuming this person works for the White House. Well, it says uh, specifically photo provided by the White House mandatory credit uh, okay. in, in the information there. So you have that person. Now, if, it, if it's someone shooting for the AP, there's there's a... Oh, it says photographer uh, Joyce uh, uh, Bogosian. Bogosian? Uh, I, th I think that's the president's uh, photographer. Okay. So now if they're working specifically for the White House and the president, ethically speaking, do they need to document what is actually happening at that moment versus an AP photographer who comes in and, and, and now there is a certain journalistic ethic. But the, the one thing that confused me and I can't, I didn't find the answer. Why keep the exif data in there? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe because the exif data also includes the uh, special instructions like mandatory credit by the white house. But uh, could you not strip everything taken. else out? Uh, you could, uh, but then people might question, when was this photo actually taken? Could this have been in some other location at some other time? I believe the president has been to Walter Reed at one point in the past as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so the questions might arise of that. And, and so that, that lends itself to having the journalistic integrity of that information being intact. And the more accurate it is, the less it can be questioned. And the fact that we are questioning it right now is because it appears to be less accurate than uh, otherwise would be assumed. Um, so uh, uh, photojournalism has always been one of these weird things where it's modified by the perceptions and modified by uh, the politics, uh, whoever your employer is, etc. Uh, and, and we have to keep that in mind. One thing that might 
possibly uh, go into the, uh, the the benefit of the photographer here is um, I would not want to spend more than 10 minutes in a room with an unmasked person that has COVID-19. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. 10 minutes is kind of high. The, the uh, That brings me to the the green, this quote unquote green screen video that came out a, right, like a, day, a day earlier. Was Did this, uh, well, I, I saw some footage of Trump standing on the White House lawn and mm-hmm. it looked like it was green screened. I never dug into it because it was just in a passing news clip. But I'm thinking right. that that can't. That doesn't match up. It doesn't compute for me. Is is that the same clip that you're talking? That's about? That's what I'm talking about. But yeah, there's a lot of controversy online. Controversy online about whether that was green screen or not. I don't think it was. It definitely looked green screened. I've I've shot photos like that where you think, well, that's like a fake background, but it's not really. And what what I I came to the conclusion myself that in all likelihood the videographer threw a 600 mil lens on and backed way up to, to Delaware to make sure that he wasn't anywhere near Trump at the time. Um, and and the, what that will do is, so, so you look, that that seemed to be shot in the middle of the day, like right around noon for whatever reason they would do that. Um, and the, the, the depth of field is really out of whack for a standard sort of press type video. Oh yeah. I mean, you don't do a press conference at 600 millimeters typically. I mean, you don't even use that for portraiture because it just feels weird to our own perceptions. It's just my guess. I don't know if if it was a 600 mil lens, but in order to get a a decent exposure in that bright sunshine, you're going to have to stop down. You're looking at probably an F11, if not 16, in order to get a decent exposure. Maybe you're going to throw a ND filter on. However, in order to get that narrow depth of field, you're looking at a long lens, which would make sense because you don't want to be standing next to a COVID person who is contagious. So that kind of that, that might check screen. out. Uh, I mean, again, we've got unknowns there. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we can't uh, we can't look at the, uh, the 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 raw data out of the camera in that case, and so we just have to uh, kind of. Uh, I was going to say, we have to trust the politicians. No, good no, we, good luck with that. I've, n- I've never met a politician that I could legit- legitimately trust. Um, and I don't know if I ever will. But no, no. Bottom line for me is, yep, they're staged. I don't know if I, if I have a problem with it. Yeah, uh, I, I again, I'm back and forth. on if I have a problem with it, I do from a photojournalistic standpoint. But if I was that photographer, I would have taken those photos as quickly as possible back to back and gotten the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yep. So uh, maybe I'm part of the problem. Um, tell you what's, uh, what's maybe not part of the problem. Maybe it is the problem. Um, the, the U.S. Army is putting alterna- uh, uh, um, altered reality camera goggles on war dogs. Augmented uh, reality. Uh, augmented reality, uh, which is also alternate reality in a sense. I mean, could you imagine? Uh, and, and when I saw this, the first time I saw it is if you dangled a virtual dog bone or treat in front of the dog where you wanted it to, to walk and run, mm-hmm. um, this would be like the funnest game ever. Um, so obviously this is for, uh, you know, reconnaissance purposes. And in the past that they would put the cameras mounted on a dog's back. And uh, you wouldn't really get to see the dog's perspective with, you know, the, where they're looking uh, and it would bounce a whole lot and it wasn't really an effective tool. Um, so now they've gone all, uh, you know, Google Glass on these pups and, uh, and, and they've got the cameras right where their eyes are. And uh, this is kind of an interesting development in terms of camera technology finding niche uses. I, I, I'm always on the fence about using animals for, you know, the, the doings of human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and yet I, I still don't have a problem with seeing eye dogs that help people or the drug sniffing dogs at the airport that keep people safe. Um, and so is this a thing that keeps people safe or is this a thing that gets people killed? And I think that's really the deciding factor of whether or not I, I'm, I'm on board with it. I, my main issue with it is like, I mean, the guys, so there's somebody looking in real time at what this dog is seeing, correct? Uh, I would assume so. That's what it looks to be completely specked out as. Um, and I don't know if it's in stereo or if there's a singular camera, um, but it's the dog's view of the world. Well, they got to be having a headset back at the place too, uh, watching that. But my point is, is what happens when these dogs sniff other dogs? Enjoy that, guys. <laughs> My mind didn't go there, Alan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm glad that yours did or not, but thank you for the laugh. 
Um, so yeah, this is the latest adaptation of camera technology in uh, in the war zone. And maybe if it does keep people safe, uh, maybe if it does give us more information, um, then it could be a good thing. I think we're going to see more of this. Um, you know, I, I think it won't be long before we replace the uh, the blood and flesh uh, canines with those robotic dogs that we see Ooh. jumping around all over the place uh, in uh, in laboratories and things like that. And those just scare the crap out of me um, because right. they they're just so cool, but they are so out of an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, oddly, this is what Pavlov had in mind. He had some extensive notes on the topic. <laughs> I, I doubt that, but uh, that, that kind of winds down the final story before we get into the picks of the week, Alan, uh, which I don't even know what yours is, but uh, where can people find you online and, uh, and your illustrious laid back podcast? Come listen to us at uh, twohosers.com. That's where you can find everything. We passed 500 episodes a little while ago. That's Congrats one per on that. week. Thank you. That's one per week. Never more, never less. Uh, we did that. So yeah, that's Adam Schwartz and I talk every week um you've been on many times how many times have you been on don and and i asked for a very specific reason i i think maybe a dozen times maybe 15 i hope it's more than a dozen because i had to do in in going for my pick of the week i had to try to remember what my other picks of those weeks were so i went back to your site and searched how many times do you know what number episode this is for me on your show what 12 12 yeah there we go i Um, thought it was number four so you're you're like almost ten percent of uh, of my guests. <laughs> I was going to do the math. Yeah, about nine point five. But it, it's yeah. I, I was surprised. I was I was legitimately shocked because I kept scrolling through and I was like, "Is there another Alan Atridge on your show?" Because I thought like time has no meaning to me anymore. By the way, in the last six months. Yeah, you know, it was it was funny. I was talking to a, a good friend of mine, and we were uh, talking about the the fires out west. And uh, I was reminiscing about the the fires in Australia. And I'm thinking, remember, you know, like what was it two years ago when Australia was on fire? <laughs> and he said, No, no, Don, that was that was January of this year. Yeah. Like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, all right, never mind then. So I did do a pick of the week. Um, this goes back to the the color grading. This goes back to do you like the orange and the teal? I love the orange and the teal. I like doing it in real real time though. So my suggestion, I I know you like to do the the geek uh, like the full on awesome geek stuff. I like to have stuff that's more accessible to everybody. You can go out for a couple of bucks, get a cheap haircut, waste your life away. And so I suggest everybody go out there. If, if you have a flash, buy yourself a gel pack for that flash you can now you can do the orange and the teal even better don't don't buy a gel pack here's what you do getting really hard to do this now but this this used to be the move if you went to a camera store like the now defunct blacks and you told them hey i need a i need a gel sample pack companies uh named roscoe or lee filters they would make they would put out a miniature little phone would be that thick which you can't see because it's an audio podcast, a thick uh, sample of all of the gels and uh, different kind of frosts and reflectors that they that they make that you can go like if you're like working in the theater or something like that, you want to ha- you know buy the big giant sheets of, but you can get the samples. The samples are about the same size as the front of your flash. They hand those out for free. Now, David Hobby kind of ruined it for everybody because everyone got into Strobist and now they all asked for them and I'm not sure they make them for free anymore. But if they do, ask for a Lee uh, sample pack or a Roscoe sample pack. You'll find everything you need in there. Pull out the ones you need. Uh, full CTO, half CTO, eighth, quarter, eighth, and the same with the, the, the blues. Now, if you can't get those, you can still buy them for a couple of bucks. You can get a decent gel kit. Now, I also want to state like for literally a couple of dollars, um, you can go to your dollar store and you can buy some colored cellophane wrapping. Um, and it's mm-hmm. not going to be accurate to any particular measurements, but if you're just doing it for artistic uh, trickery and having some fun with it, uh, you can buy some like sheets of cellophane that you would like wrap gift baskets with and, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, and, and that's, it's, it's not the same stuff. Uh, don't get those two things confused. But if you want to color your light, um, then there's some really easy ways to do that. I've even, uh, gone as far as to, um, you know, take a, a piece of plastic. Like, I, I don't know why I have just random plastic stuff sitting on my desk, some packaging of some sort. Uh, what if I drew on this with a highlighter? 
and then put that in front of my flash. Um, then I'm going to get a colored light on the other side of it. And it's going to be slight. It's not going to be major. But there's a lot of stuff that you can do uh, to play around with the quality of the light and, and the color grading right in camera uh, before you take it into post and, and handle other things there. It doesn't even need to be that dramatic. It's just a, a slight slight hint of, of color difference separation between your, your key light and your shadows, and you'll get that orange and, uh, and blue look that you're looking for. Uh, or that you're not looking for, because please don't overuse that look. Uh, <laughs> use it well. Just use it well. <clears throat> well, and, and so that, that's a really down-to-earth, simple uh, solution, and I thank you for that. And my pick of the week is completely unattainable to anybody, um, <laughs> uh, partly because you won't find anybody selling it, uh, and if you do, it will cost you uh, maybe more than your camera depends on how much your camera's worth. Um, but I, I was able to obtain, and I mentioned it on, on the show before. I don't know if I made it my pick because it's so obscure, but it's in, it's in fitting with the video that's just come out from DP review for which I had used, uh, the Nikon Rayfact, um, uh, 105 millimeter F 4.5 UV lens. Now this is a remake uh, up exact same optical formula and, and design uh, of the older, I think 19, like mid eighties, uh, maybe, mid, maybe late uh, or uh, late eighties um, of the UV Nikkor uh, 105 millimeter macro lens. And this lens, it, it has, it has optics, but they're not made of glass. They're entirely made of quartz. And that means that they have extreme ultraviolet transmission down to, I think, 250 nanometers, which is really, really deep. Your camera sensor can't even detect that um, at that point. Maybe some specific film emulsions can if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but I had been using some other uh, ultraviolet you know, compatible lenses. Some have fused silica glass in them that uh, have a higher amount of ultraviolet transmission and they're inexpensive. And we're going to put a link to those in the show notes as well, because for $120, you can get a uh, ultraviolet lens and filters to do some of this stuff. You will need to modify a camera as well. You need a full spectrum camera to do it. But um, this lens in comparison to those is like driving a... A, I don't know, a Ferrari versus a Pinto. Uh, yeah, they, it's four wheels and it'll get you from one point to another, but this is such a much more enjoyable <laughs> experience. Uh, and uh, it cost me, I, I think I, I got it for a steal and a steal was around $4,500 Canadian. Um, and so you could expect to, to possibly pay more for one of these things. And it's not complete without filters. And, and I've got some fancy uh, ultraviolet filters that do a very good job at blocking all, uh, all visible uh, light and all infrared light too. Because if 1%, it might even be less than that, but let's just say for argument's sake, if 1% of the infrared light from the sun gets through uh, to the sensor, well, the sensor is as sensitive to that 1% as the majority, all of the uh, ultraviolet light that comes in. And yes, it's the sensitivities and the intensities of the lights come into play. But if you have any leakage of infrared light, then uh, your image is going to be tainted or contaminated by, uh, by that light. You're, it's going to be softer. It's going to have less contrast and so on and so forth. But one of the things I really want to try with this lens uh, is to do some landscape photography in ultraviolet. I don't know of anybody that's really done that. I've done some tests with the other lenses that I had before, um, and I was able to get a, um, a cascading fog effect on a mountain range uh, when we were traveling that, you know, in the film era, you wouldn't want, they, they would call that UV haze. It would kind of soften your image uh, in the distance. But if it's just an ultraviolet photograph, that haze is so much more dominant, it actually looks like there's a dense fog in the area. And that can be photographically quite beautiful if you use it right with the proper scene. So lots of fun I, I'll have with this. Uh, the beautiful thing about a lens like this, uh, and I've got another uh, antique Leica lens um, that I paid a lot for, is that they will hold their value for almost ever. Uh, mm -hmm. What I paid for this, I could probably sell it for more than I paid for it right now. And so your well, money's going to autograph it and bidding starts at $9,000. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I'm, I'm probably going to hold on to it for a couple of years, uh, get get my full use out of it, and then move it on to somebody else that wants to explore it. But Now it's a uh, 105, in, you said? It's it's 105 millimeter. It's it's only f4.5 versus the regular macro lens being uh, f2.8. And it only okay. gets to half life size. And so there's some concessions there. And you can modify 
that by using extension tubes on the backside to get more magnification. Uh, you can't use close-up filters on the front because they're not made of quartz glass and they'll otherwise block the light. So mm -hmm. extension tubes are a way for you to get closer with that. But you're going to shoot uh, landscapes with this, you said. Well, yeah. So uh, in, in that case, I would be shooting it at, at a much smaller aperture than 4.5 typically and uh, no extension tubes required. And at 105, I'm, I'm seeing you doing a, a stitched panorama shot in UV. Uh, I could do that. Uh, or, you know, I've done some landscape photography at up to a thousand millimeters. Uh, you know, you don't have to have the, the whole vista. You can pick a smaller portion of that out, especially at a greater distance, which might have a greater UV fog effect uh, to, uh, to, to make something a bit more dynamic and interesting to that end. So okay. we'll see. Um, I, I might even point it at the night sky and, and see what would come out of that. Although uh, if I have to be shooting like for video, shooting with that thing I was shooting at ISO 12,800 to, uh, you know, 51,200 uh, in order to get um, uh, one 25th of a second at uh, uh, probably around F5.6, stop down just a little bit um, mm. for the sun which is a star and it emits ultraviolet light, but right. for the stars much farther away, I, I don't think I can gather enough light from them to make anything interesting. I will try though. There's no harm in trying. Okay. Look forward to All seeing right. the results of that. I'm looking forward to it as well, uh, or at least to regale people with the failures that ensue, because I'm sure that there will be some. Um, but it's all experiments that I can do at home in my own backyard. And uh, oh, that's where I'm staying most of the time these days. Alan, thank you for being on the show. Uh, always appreciate your input and opinions. And uh, and hope to, I'll have you back on for episode 13 within the next little while as well. The 13th one is free, Don. Uh, well, now you tell me. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Alan. And uh, to everybody listening, thank you as well. And now it is time to stay in and shoot. <laughs>